Hi everyone, David Pembroke here, and no, I'm not about to launch into another noisy introduction, but I am going to introduce you to something new. It's the podcast, Work With Purpose, A National Perspective. The series is going to be hosted by the one and only Gordon DeBrower, who is currently serving as the National President of IPA. I know Gordon is known to many of you. He is a distinguished academic serving as a professor of economics in the Crawford School of Economics and Government at the ANU in the early 2000s. And during that time, he did serve as the executive director of the Australia-Japan Research Centre. He was appointed as secretary of the Department of the Environment in September of 2013 after receiving a public service medal in 2011 for outstanding public service in the development of international economic policy, particularly in the formulation of the Australian government's agenda to establish the G20 as the preeminent global economic forum. In this special series of Work With Purpose, Gordon will talk to the leaders of the various state government public services across Australia and around the region to explore how they have adapted to meet the challenges of COVID-19, how they are organising their resources, deciding priorities and preparing for the challenging days ahead. Gordon is a lovely bloke and whip smart. And in this first interview with the equally impressive Chris Eccles, who's the Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria, they discuss a number of adjustments that have been made in Victoria to better serve the people of that state. Interestingly, this notion of purpose in public policy is a topic that Chris Eccles has written and spoken about extensively for many years. So with that, welcome to Work With Purpose, A National Perspective, brought to you by Gordon DeBrower. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a special episode of Work With Purpose, a podcast about public service in Australia. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll realise that I'm not your regular host, David Pembroke. My name is Gordon DeBrower, and I'm the National President of IPA. I'll be helping to broaden the conversation for this podcast series over coming weeks by talking with state and territory public service leaders. And today, I'm delighted to be talking with Chris Eccles, AO, the Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria, about the Victorian response to the pandemic. Chris has been leading the Premier's Department uh, in that role since December 2014. And interestingly, he held the same role for both New South Wales and South Australian governments before that. Chris's career has been within state public services. Uh, My own has been in the federal public service as Secretary of uh, Environment and Energy and uh, worked in Prime Minister and Cabinet and there I had the, uh, the genuine pleasure of working at various times with Chris. So, Chris, welcome to Work With Purpose, National Perspectives. Fantastic. Good to, good to be with you, Gordon. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'd like to start the conversation by just looking at how the pandemic emerged in Victoria. And can you recount for us briefly sort of how you saw the pandemic evolving and when you recognised its significance? Yeah, it, um, our general awareness emerged from probably late January 
with the formation of the incident management team within our health department. I must say at the time I was preoccupied with bushfire recovery. So there were a few things happening at the, at the one time. February then saw a series of updated case definitions with testing expanded to increase to an increasing number of arrivals from different countries. And then it hit home again to me in mid-February when we launched a campaign to support Victoria's Chinese community stronger together. It became apparent to me that the, the impact was being felt generally within society. And then the intensity really, really cranked up in the week commencing the 8th of March, which paradoxically at one level, uh, the beginning of that week had the women's 20 T20 final at the MCG, and I was one of 83,000 attendees at the MCG. And it just seems in hindsight and, and, in, and looking back just to be extraordinary that in that week, the week, and I'll come to what finished the, off that week, that I was amongst 83,000 people at the, at the G. That week then saw the release of our pandemic plan. Uh, we activated the Emergency Management State Control Centre. And then on the 13th, a, a signature day, the 13th of March, we had the Formula One cancelled, COAG met, the National Cabinet was formed and met on the 15th of March and Victoria declared a state of emergency on the 16th of March. And I can have, I have to say that from that moment we were sprinting and I was in the office for the next 25 days um, mm. dealing with the, with, the, uh, with the response. Joel, thanks, thanks Chris. Um, that's a really nice scene setter. Um, maybe we can just talk through three broad impacts of the pandemic that's relevant for, for public service. Uh, the first is going to be around uh, impact on service delivery to the public, and then we'll talk about um, impact on workplaces in the in the public service, and then finally around uh, relationships that the service has with ministers, the community and business, and really other governments in the federation. So might start then with uh, the impact on service delivery to the public. Can you talk through how the pandemic affected? or changed service delivery uh, to the Victorian people? Yeah, um, the last week of March saw a progressive escalation of restrictions culminating in the stage three restrictions requiring people to stay at home unless for the purpose of going and accessing food and supplies, medical care, exercise or work and education. So that, if you like, was the um, the centre of gravity from which service delivery had to be conceptualised and executed. And the impact on service delivery was immediate, wholesale and profound. Um, school education system moved to remote and flexible learning. Um, Non-urgent elective surgery was suspended. Uh, emergency department presentations and admissions, including for mental health, were substantially reduced. And across our justice and social service portfolios, including the courts, corrections, youth justice, family violence, child protection, disability housing, homelessness and drug and alcohol, all were impacted by the imperative in relation to the maintenance of the health and well-being of our citizens and our own workforce. So at the most general level, 
the service delivery modifications broadly included limiting face-to-face -face contact with clients where possible and expanding the remote modes of service delivery, whether it was via the phone or email or video conference and web chat contact. There was also the prioritisation of service access for clients with high risk and immediate need, which had the inevitable consequence, consequence that we are dealing with now and will continue to deal with, which is the, the backlog of service. Can I ask you within that, um, with the particular behavioural, organisational or technological changes that you had to make, particularly people talk a lot about digital and how you use digital as a way to provide services? Digital was um, was particularly was particularly critical, and with some examples of the the digital enablement is the use of audio visual links to hear a higher volume of core matters remotely. Uh, another example is the remote supervision of people who are subject to community based orders, and a third might be the expanded telehealth options. So they're all the, the creative use of, of technology to support engagement with, with clients. Um, there'll be a bunch of other changes which are less immediate and probably will require further analysis and development. Less to do with technology and more to do with the substance of how we change the behaviour or influence the behaviour of people. And that might include things like um, staggered school start times. Um, it might include embedding modal shifts in transport. And it might include the extension of in-home medical treatment. So there are two categories of response. One where we were, we were able to use technology, and in particular digital technology, to support the ongoing needs of citizens. And the second category are the more profound categories of behaviour change, where um, I'd have to say after 11 weeks, we've probably still got a bit of work to do to, um, to, um, to design them, let alone to activate them and roll them out. Right. Can I ask with... Um when you roll out digital, it's got to be, and you're changing service delivery, it's got to be the the service delivery agency or body or the people themselves have to want to use that technology or that approach. And then the public or the people who receive or use those services have to want to change and use those services. Can you talk a little bit about how you, did you have to get consensus amongst public servants to change that? And how did you talk with people who were receiving those services about how you'd use digital? I think the the most the the, the way to convince um, the public service about the importance of um, reconfiguring the service delivery model it's not too difficult because fundamentally they're motivated by a desire to continue to support the clients through their particular channel of service delivery. So it's, the, the, their hearts are there. It's more providing a, uh, a framework for 
um, our service providers to systematically examine their service delivery operating method and client needs. And so we've, we've identified a method for that purpose. One is that you, uh, if you like, build very quickly a framework for that assessment. So in the first instance, you, you determine the status. So you assess the benefits and risks of the service delivery approach and the user experience. You then monitor, you assess the effectiveness of the intervention and the data. You then evaluate through a live evaluation of the delivery model. You then share good practice through the dissemination of the successful alternative responses, and then you embed. So you entrench the improvements in day-to-day -day operations. So if you're providing a, a common analytical method to enable those on the front line with the support of our data people and our analysts to make sense of their service delivery operating method and then to systematically change that, then I think you've won you've won the you've won their you've won their hearts. Their hearts are already there, but you've also won their minds by supplying them with this um, with this method. In terms of the clients themselves, um, we have found again there was little need to encourage people to uh, adapt their engagement preferences because they were fundamentally motivated by the same thing: um, the the clarion call to arms the overwhelming impact on society and on their needs meant that they were wholly receptive to changes in the service delivery model. And we were, I think, as the first step in that framework was actually deeply understanding the user experience and designing the response, the enhanced response to that experience. So they're, they're not, they weren't disconnected. They were fundamentally fundamentally connected and we were motivated by ultimately a total totally common purpose yeah, that's great can I ask with um, when you engage with the, the public servants around the service delivery talking about how do you collect data and the frameworks those things did you use existing systems or did you have to create new systems or also in creating an authorizing environment did you have to shift your thinking around risk appetite how do, what's your, how do you engage with risk? And if something goes wrong, how do you deal with the political uh, process around that? Yeah, the, um, there's nothing, I mean, it's such a, such a cliche now about a crisis sharpening the mind. But in our case, it has sharpened our mind, particularly in relation to um, gathering and synthesising inf information across government and elsewhere to drive the response planning. So we've created a what we call the critical information unit that sits within DPC and it's assembled the data from different 15 different data points and sources across government and beyond, put the modellers and the analysts together and created, if you like, a, a single point of reference for the intersection and complementarity of all of those data points, which we now bring to our Crisis Council of Cabinet weekly. And it's it's illuminating a whole series of um, 
a whole series of, well, what were once issues in the siloed nature of the way we uh, accumulate data, but it's also identified the, the opportunities for a systematic response, a data-driven response based on the intelligent analysis of all of those data points. So in one sense, it's been, it's been totally liberating and we are presenting that data directly to cabinet ministers. So it's not overly intermediated and it's not overly analysed. Uh, we are presenting in real time uh, substantial data, whether it's about the, you know, the, the the state of the the state of the health response, whether it's about the state of business confidence, whether it's about what we are discovering in the city a bit through pedestrian traffic about the the challenges with people returning to uh, more normal forms of living and moving, and we're able to calibrate our response as a government. To, um, to a picture that's painted by the data in real time. Yeah, thanks. That's, that's profound. Just on finishing up on the uh, service delivery bit, uh, are there any things that you would see already that you'd want to lock in changes, um, maybe through the use of digital, is it in courts, community services, education, health, that you see as being more permanent? Yeah, it, it, it is an interesting one because... The, the rapid cadence of government in terms of the design, decision, execution, time frame is addictive. Um, the speed to outcome is totally addictive, um, as is the expenditure of public funding. So, I mean, how much fun is it to spend over $6 billion to support and rebuild an economy in 10 weeks? <laughs> but but ultimately, and I can see you smiling as someone who's been guarding the nation's purse strings in a, in a past life, but ultimately that's not sustainable both fiscally and in terms of good public policy. You can't continue to move at that speed. But having said all of that and, and recognising that we will return to something a bit more conventional in terms of our approach to the design of good policy, there are a few things that I think will endure. Uh, one is the tailoring of responses to ensure government services meet the individual needs of citizens. The second is probably the application of data in all forms and in an integrated fashion direct to decision makers. And the third is probably um, using our missions because we've formed eight missions and they they, they deal with the immediate response, the continuity of essential services and the restoration of public services across the missions and using the concept of the missions as an enduring organising principle for government. That would be probably the... They're the three things that that I don't want to lose as a result of, um, of this, this adventure. Thanks. Can you just explain a bit more about what those missions are, what the eight missions are, but just briefly? Yeah, sure. Um, we came up with the idea of a mission partly because it connects into a moral purpose and partly because, by definition, missions crash through portfolio, conventional portfolio structures. Um, they provide 
a clarity of purpose, um, the focused application of expertise, a rapid transition from design to delivery, and the the eight are in sort of three domains. There's the immediate response, there's the health emergency, the economic emergency, and the business continuity in priority industry sectors, that's three. Then we have the continuity of essential services for people, that's justice, education and social services, and then economic, which is electricity networks, communications and transport. So that's five. Then economic recovery, which is about the recovery strategies post the crisis. And then two missions related to the restoration of public services. So people and economic, which is looking at the long run impacts and risks of a return and now starting to design for the resumption of services entirely possibly in reconfigured terms based on the learnings through the crisis. And so those eight missions have, each has a, a lead secretary. The lead secretary is directly accountable to the Premier for the discharge of the mission. And they've been removed from the day-to-day -day administration of their departments. And we now have associate secretaries who are running the departments to enable the secretaries to execute the missions um, and the reporting through the Crisis Council of Cabinet and to the Premier. A di totally different way of organising the business of government, but we've found it to be highly effective. That's going to be a case study that everyone's going to watch. Because, <laughs> um, I might just move on now to um, the impact of uh, the pandemic on public service workplaces. And um, maybe can you just talk a bit about uh, the different ways of working within the service? and yeah. maybe also what changes you think should be retained? So, I mean, our advice to the VPS is to continue to work from home where possible and set some expectations that this will continue for some time yet, probably the winter. So at the moment we've got probably over 80% of the public service working from home. And the experience, the best way of understanding the experience of people is to survey them. So we conducted a survey of, of 6,000 VPS staff who usually work in an office environment. And the key findings have been really interesting. The first is that the vast majority have been able to do their jobs properly um, in a remote environment. The second is that they have an overall sense of being more productive and as engaged as before, but the ways of collaborating can be improved. Managing people is more difficult for some managers, but most find managing the deliverables is about the same. And then most people would like to work remotely two to three days per week on the other side. So we've got a, a, a rich data um, source at the moment. Having said that, I'm not Pollyanna-ish. That 15% are struggling, and the longer the lo and that's a, a substantial number. And our longer-term return-to-work arrangements will have to consider support and priority access to office-based work environments for those who are unable to um, to take advantage of the remote working opportunities. And we formed a, a remote working transition working group to develop a whole-of-government approach to the future of work. And we've got a, an extensive work program which is looking at the 
um, priority workforce for return, health and safety considerations, workplace behaviour and supports, and really interestingly, the use of suburban and regional generic office hubs so that if you're not working from home, you don't have to come into the metropolitan the centre of uh, the centre of Melbourne, so we, we I would imagine we will have many thousands of public servants working from home, or if not from home, working from a more distributed uh, distributed points of um, um, points of work. Right. Have we got any observations around uh, the skill sets then, or the attributes that may be required for public servants that flow from different patterns or styles of work? Yeah, I think that the 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 skill sets, some of them are the most prosaic. That the enablement of being able to deal with technology in its various in its various forms. So that's a that's a almost like an health and safety, um, a skill set related to um, uh, safely working working from home having the skills to engage with technology. It has it, it, it's going to change some of the, the some of the cultural settings too. That it, it, it's actually breathed life into the introverts, um, which is fascinating. That in a in a physical and I'm, I've, I've tested this with a few folk in the in the conventional work environment, uh, extroverts rule. In a remote working environment, it has really let loose the capacity of the introvert to make as material a contribution as the extrovert. So, I love it. I love the idea that um, <laughs> that we have those who have perhaps been a bit, you know, suppressed or repressed in their ability to uh, to contribute. This has um, this has enabled that. And it, it, it's also compelling managers to look to their workforces a bit differently. There's a huge degree, there's an investment of trust. There's different metrics to determine productivity. Presence, the presence is now, will we'll never come back as being a mark of productivity ever. We'll be challenged to, um, to deal with, uh, managers will be challenged in dealing with under underperformance. The conventional approaches to that will need to be, I think, tipped up and re-examined. But it's a it's a job for our, I think, for our public service commissions to really to start to help uh, help managers and leaders in the public service to identify what the issues are going to be, what the skills are going to be, and uh, how best we're able to transition to the new world. It's going to be interesting to see over time what that means for people's careers and who gets promoted and who ultimately are the leaders of the service over time. I think I, they will be very different to the leaders that you and I grew up with. Not, not a bad thing, Chris. <laughs> um, just on um, maybe we go to relationships now and talk a little bit about how you saw the response to the pandemic or the pandemic affecting, say, your relationship with ministers um, so with the community, but probably also very much with uh, other governments and really both the Commonwealth here, but also uh, other states and, and territories. Uh, with ministers, look, the relationship between ministers and the public service is, is fundamentally the same. Our job is to provide 
high quality and impartial advice and implement the decisions of government with speed and competence. Now, that hasn't changed. The context is different. The cadence and complexity has changed. Uh, and what it has for me, it's, it's actually um, it's, it's emphasised the symbiosis between the, um, between the ministerial class and the public service. In terms of ministerial officers, um, the, the, the different core drivers remain. They're paid to be partial and partisan. We're paid to be impartial and non-partisan. But there's been an unparalleled level of collaboration driven by the imperatives of government taking good decisions in short timeframes. The business and the community, I think, What's emerged is that government is generally more visible and more present, whether in determining the very settings for the operation of society or providing support to business and other affected sectors and individuals. And with that presence comes greater scrutiny and the application of judgment. And I think the response to date has shown an increase in confidence and trust. And with that, confidence and trust, I think, comes licence. And I think there's now the, at the greatest opportunity in my time as a career public servant for that licence to shape the economy, service systems, and more generally create a more equitable, inclusive and progressive society. So I'm hugely excited by the upside and really looking forward to taking, hopefully taking advantage of that community or social licence to drive some really substantial reform. In relation to National Cabinet, the, I've been so privileged to have been part of, now, I think it's almost 20 meetings as of this Friday, 20 meetings of National Cabinet where I've been in COAG over the last 13, um, 13 years. And I think there's a very real opportunity to adapt COAG and apply the positives from the operation of National Cabinet. And I know that the Prime Minister's turning his mind to that. In fact, I think a discussion is scheduled on that matter for this uh, for this Friday. But it, I don't think it's 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 something as, as simple as COAG is so yesterday and National Cabinet is so today. I think it's a blend. There were some very real strengths in the COAG process that might not have been as visible to our political leaders. But there are also some very real strengths that have emerged from the last 10 weeks of experience of National Cabinet. And some of the lessons for me that have emerged from that is the real importance of decisions accommodating differences between jurisdictions and the recognition of difference between jurisdictions. And that is now deeply embedded in the working the working of the National Cabinet. Um, I think there's something about matters progressing quickly with rapid decision-making, something about robust discussion and meaningful decision-making by First Ministers who have become expert in a particular matter, which means in the future a focused agenda and frequent conversation makes communication and engagement easier and actually means that they hold more detailed knowledge and, and therefore more detailed discussion. That something too about transparency the Prime Minister's visibility and high engagement with press conferences and expert input to decision-making has been extraordinary, as have First Ministers from other jurisdictions. So it's bringing the, the community along with a, 
uh, with a real-time insight into the decision-making process and outcomes. We're never going to go back to a um, to a, 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 a more formal, structured way of communicating the outcomes of National Cabinet. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Chris. Um, I think we've come to our time. Um, can I just ask you, just as I wrap up, uh, just in one sentence, can I, a personal question, what, what have you discovered about yourself in this crisis that you maybe didn't know before? Uh, in one sentence, I think what it has done is exaggerated my weaknesses. Gee, you have to add, you have to do a sub clause now to that sentence. <laughs> uh, because it's it has been so intense, um, my weaknesses. Are, I mean, I, I can get too task focused and careless with people, and it just means that if you're aware of your weakness, you can compensate for it. And so, I'm being very deliberate in trying to. Uh, bring myself above the the day-to-day fray and to be more careful with people. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, uh, You've got got my deep respect, frankly, as a leader and as a person. So uh, thank you very much for this honest conversation. I I think we've all really enjoyed it. And it's a really fantastic way to start this uh, work with purpose, sort of a national discussion. Um, So can I really thank you uh, for 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 your honesty and and your, your insight? It's been my total delight, Gordon. All the very best. Yeah, thanks. And I might just uh, close now to the audience and say thank you uh, for joining this special episode of Work With Purpose, National Perspectives. And I'll be back in coming weeks as your special Thursday host on a national conversation with secretaries of other state and territory governments. So have a good day. Mm -hmm.